0: A warning before we begin, today's episode includes discussions of domestic violence and homicide, and mention of suicide. Caution is advised for listeners under 13. When we think about landmark modern missing persons cases, there are a few that come to mind. This is one of them. A young mother gone seemingly overnight. Her husband claims ignorance, but anytime the cameras are rolling, he flashes a taunting smile. It's a case where power and professional status were undeniably abused and those who needed help were silenced. Their fears weren't taken seriously and the consequences were fatal. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I'll discuss a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear, and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet a young woman who disappeared from the suburbs of Chicago in 2007. Even in headlines today, she shares her last name with the man who most likely killed her, which is why you probably know her as Stacy Ann Peterson.
1: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be.
0: That's Science VS. New season out on
1: Spotify soon.
0: For most of her life, Stacy Peterson was Stacy Kales. Brown hair, a big smile, small dimples. She grows up in the suburbs of Chicago. And her childhood is turbulent. It's marked by two alcoholic parents: an absent mother, and unexpected deaths, including two of Stacy's sisters. Jessica and Lacey. After her mother, Christy, gets charged with child neglect, she abandons the family entirely when Stacy's 14. Stacy spends the rest of her life not knowing if her mother's alive or dead. Now, there's a school of thought out there that suggests hurt people hurt others, but I know that doesn't have to be true. And I think Stacy would agree with me, She works hard to build a stable life for herself and break the cycle. By 2007, she's 23 years old. She's got a job, a home, and a husband who's a cop, Drew Peterson. She took his last name when they got married four years back. From the outside looking in, if you're a stranger, you might even envy her life. She's a fiercely devoted mother to four children, including two she adopted from her husband's previous marriage. She's surrounded by family and friends who love her, and she genuinely cares about bringing people together. Then, she goes missing. It's October 28, 2007, and Stacey Peterson is supposed to be helping a friend paint a house. She confirmed her plans only a few hours ago, but she's running late, and nobody knows where she is. Around 2 p.m., Stacy's sister Cassandra tries calling Stacy, but her cell phone is off. When she tries calling back 2 hours later, it's on again, but it rings off the hook. Stacy's gone dark. The afternoon turns to evening and no one has heard from Stacy. So Cassandra drives to her sister's house around 11 p.m. to check in on her. When she arrives, Stacy's car isn't in the driveway but neither is Drew's. According to Stacy's stepson, Christopher, Drew and Stacy got into an argument earlier in the day. Stacy ran out of the house and now Drew is out looking for her. But Cassandra doesn't really trust Drew. So frustrated, she leaves, drives to a nearby parking lot and calls him. Like Christopher, Drew says he got in a fight with Stacy and she ran off. Then he tells her he's currently at home, which can't be true. Cassandra was just there. She didn't see him or his car. By 1230 AM, Cassandra's worried. She hasn't heard from her sister in over 12 hours, but she doesn't know if filing a police report with the local department will do any good. After all, Drew works there and she doesn't trust him. She contacts officers in nearby Downers Grove, but because of jurisdiction protocol, they forward her to Bolingbrook PD anyway the reaction she gets is exactly what she was hoping to avoid. Nobody seems concerned. Rather than do anything themselves, the officers who take the report ask Cassandra to drive back to Stacy's house and check if Stacy's car is still missing. It feels like an unusually specific request, but when Cassandra does go back, Stacy's car is in the driveway. It doesn't make any sense. It's almost like the officer she spoke with knew it would be there. Cassandra's sitting there, idling outside of the house, unsure what to do next, but eventually she calls Drew again, and he tells her Stacy's gone for good. She left him for another man. But with Stacy's car still in the driveway, it obviously feels like a lie. As far as Cassandra knows, there is no other man, and Cassandra can't shake the feeling that the Bolingbroke PD might never take her report seriously. So after hanging up with Drew, Cassandra escalates her concerns. She reports Stacy missing to the Illinois State Police and waits. Meanwhile, around 8.30 a.m. on October 29th, Drew drops by his neighbor Sharon Bachowski's house. He tells Sharon that Stacy left him for another man. And that's basically it. To Sharon, this isn't a huge surprise. Stacy and Sharon were close and they talked a lot about Stacy's marriage. But even though Sharon knew that Stacy wanted to leave, something felt off. Stacy didn't take any of the kids with her. Sharon thought that would have been out of the question for Stacy. By 10 a.m., the state police are investigating Stacy's disappearance. They bring Drew in for questioning, and he finally lays out a timeline for what happened the day before. According to him, after their argument on October 28th, Stacy left the house at about 10.30 a.m. And around 2 p.m., Drew called in sick to work. He didn't hear from Stacy for another seven hours. Then around 9 p.m., Stacy called him. And this is when she told him she was leaving him for another man. Around 11.45 p.m., Drew walked into Bowling Brook's Municipal Airport, Clow International, where he found Stacy's car in the parking lot. Then he drove it back home and went to bed. For officials, and I think anyone listening, details about Drew's account don't add up. It was odd that he called in sick to work so early in the day before he had any idea that Stacy wasn't going to be coming back. To authorities, this seemed like more than a simple case of a runaway wife. Three days later, investigators obtain a search warrant for the Petersons' home. The presence of so many officers attracts a lot of attention. And soon, their Bolingbrook cul-de-sac is swarming with reporters camping out in the driveway and surrounding lawns. Rather than avoid the media or use it to spotlight his missing wife, Drew confronts and antagonizes them. He'll film the camera people as they film him, or peel out of the driveway while loudly revving his motorcycle to scare them. When he speaks to reporters, it's usually to mock them for considering him a suspect. If they asked what happened to Stacy, he tells them, she's gone on her own, and it's not by nothing that I did. But by November 9th, officials are investigating Stacy's disappearance as a potential homicide. And as time goes on, Drew becomes their primary suspect. As investigators quickly find out, there's much more to their six-year relationship than meets the eye. The stories about what happened behind closed doors are chilling.
1: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit AnytimeFitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details.
0: To fully understand Stacey's disappearance, I want to take you back in time to when Stacy Kales and Drew Peterson first met. It's 2001. Stacy's just graduated high school and she's working as a hotel receptionist. In walks this man who starts flirting with her. There's no denying that he's much older. He's 47 at the time. Stacy's 17. Now, obviously I and many others have a huge concern over this age difference. At age 17, Stacy is still a child. And I want to state clearly that this type of behavior is predatory. Older men like this aren't looking for children that are mature for their age. They are looking for someone to manipulate. But for Stacy, he feels like a breath of fresh air. He's charming, chivalrous when he wants to be, a uniformed officer, and he's a welcome distraction from some of the worries in her life. It also helps that their schedules align. Drew works odd hours as the sergeant of the Bolingbroke Police Department. When he's not working, and even sometimes when he is, he finds excuses to hang around the Marriott Hotel. After they start seeing each other, Drew pulls some strings to get Stacy a new job as a clerk for Bolingbroke. Everything about Drew seems great, but there's one big catch. He's married. Now, Stacy knows this, but for those around Stacy, there's this hum of dread. Something doesn't feel right. And while Stacy knows a lot about Drew, she doesn't know everything. Like how Drew has a long history of dating younger women, infidelity, and seriously troubling behavior. And the woman he's cheating on with Stacy, she's actually his third wife. First, he married his high school sweetheart, but they divorced in 1980 after he cheated on her while she was pregnant. Then he was briefly engaged to a younger woman. After their engagement fell through, he stalked and harassed her, which allegedly included abusing his position as a law enforcement officer by writing her fake traffic tickets. She apparently tried to press charges, but Drew's position shielded him from any consequences. After that, he married another woman, whom he reportedly cheated on, abused, and divorced. Then he married his current wife, Kathleen Savio. By the time Drew and Stacy begin seeing each other, Drew and Kathleen have two kids together. They keep their relationship a secret, but they're not exactly subtle about it. They run around having sex in the basement of Drew's house while Kathleen's asleep upstairs. Soon though, Drew's coworkers find out about Stacy, and their main concern isn't the cheating, it's her age. They check to see if it's legal for Drew to be dating someone so young, but the age of sexual consent in Illinois is 17. So unfortunately, he's protected by the law. His coworkers don't have to do anything about it, which I'm sure they're happy about. Now, at this point, Kathleen's still in the dark, but eventually someone does anonymously tip her off about Drew's cheating. So in early 2002, she files for divorce After that, Drew moves out of the house he shared with Kathleen and moves into a new home with Stacy, 500 yards away. Why? I couldn't even begin to tell you, but whatever the reason, it's probably petty. By the time Stacy and Drew settle down, Stacy's already pregnant with their first child, Anthony, and the pregnancy kicks off a whirlwind of a year. From 2002 to 2003, Bolingbroke police respond to 18 domestic incidents involving Drew, Stacy, and Kathleen Savio. Most of them are about childcare and visitation rights. But in that time frame, Kathleen files for an order of protection against Drew, saying she's afraid for her life. But that restraining order eventually gets dropped because Drew pleads to Kathleen's lawyers. He doesn't want to lose his job as a police officer. By October, 2003, Drew and Stacy are married. Drew's divorce with Kathleen has been legally finalized. They're just waiting to settle alimony, child support, and to decide who gets to keep certain assets, like the house. Five months later, it's looking like Kathleen will likely get the house and a cut of Drew's pension, but the paperwork never gets finished because Kathleen doesn't make it to the final court proceedings. On March 1st, 2004, a neighbor finds her dead in her bathtub at home, naked in the fetal position. Her hair's damp, but there's nothing else to indicate she was taking a bath. The Bolingbroke police are called to the scene, but since Drew is one of their own, the investigation is passed up to the Illinois State Police. I wish we could walk through the whole investigation now, but we can't. What's important to know though, is it's horribly mishandled. The special agent who testifies at Kathleen's inquest never interviews Drew or Stacy. He doesn't attend Kathleen's autopsy or even visit the crime scene. And yet he testifies that Kathleen most likely slipped, fell and drowned. Just so we're clear, an inquest is not a criminal proceeding. It carries no legal weight. But for some reason, state authorities close the case. Kathleen Savio's death is officially ruled an accident. And that's not even the strangest part. Two weeks after Kathleen's death, despite the fact that her divorce attorney says that she never wrote a will, one magically appears, awarding Drew Peterson almost everything left to her name. And go figure, Drew's the one who found the mysterious document. For Drew, Kathleen's death saves him time and money in the long run and becomes a very convenient windfall. As for Stacy, a lot changes after Kathleen's death. First, there's her home life. She becomes responsible for Kathleen's grieving sons, Christopher and Thomas, and eventually adopts them. She loves them like her own but that doesn't change the fact that in less than three years, Stacy goes from being underaged and single to married and mothering four kids. Six, if you count Drew's two sons from his first marriage, one of whom recently moved into their basement with his girlfriend, and is, by the way, uncomfortably close to Stacy in age. Then there's the plastic surgery. Stacy gets braces, LASIK, breast implants, liposuction, and a tummy tuck all before she turns 24 years old. In and of itself, there's nothing wrong with getting plastic surgery, but there's speculation around whether she wanted these surgeries herself or if Drew pressured her to get them. I can't tell you what's true and what's not, but I do know Drew pays for everything. And on top of everything else, Drew and Stacy start fighting and their fights slowly become more and more frequent. Most are arguments stemming from Drew's need to keep tabs on Stacy 24-7. If Stacy ever says she's going out with friends or running errands, he'll drive by to make sure she's telling the truth, sometimes in his cruiser while he's on duty. Paranoid, he accuses her of flirting with other men and cheating, but the fights sometimes turn physical. Stacy reportedly fights back every time. And one of Stacy's relatives describes an incident in which Drew threw Stacy down and shoved her into a TV. Things keep boiling over until September 2006 when something within Stacy cracks. After a courageous battle with cancer, her half-sister Tina passes away. At the funeral, Stacy and Tina's husband, her brother-in-law, the man who just lost his wife, comfort each other in their grief. Drew takes this as a sign that Stacy's sleeping with him and again, accuses her of cheating. After this, Stacy apparently becomes absolutely distraught. Over the next year, Stacy becomes more vocal that she wants a divorce. She pushes back against Drew's suffocating behavior and at some point, she speaks with a divorce lawyer and confides in her pastor, the Reverend Neil Shorey, that she plans to leave Drew. Then in August 2007, Stacy asks Neil to meet at a local coffee shop. When they arrive, Stacey's visibly distressed. She wants to get a secret off her chest, and it's a big one. She tells her pastor, Drew killed Kathleen Savio. She's sure of it. The night Kathleen died, Drew came home in the middle of the night with a duffel bag full of clothes that he immediately washed. Then he gave Stacy an alibi to cover for him. Neil hears all of this and apparently just lets Stacy go back home to live with a murderer. Then somehow Drew finds out about this meeting between Stacy and Neil. And what does he do? Naturally, he accuses Stacy of being romantically interested in their pastor. He also asks Neil to meet up one-on-one with him, but given everything he just heard, the pastor avoids Drew at all costs. After that, nothing else seems to come of Stacy's conversation at the coffee shop. But two months later, she disappears. And Drew doesn't seem to care all that much without any remorse or concern for her well-being, he blames Stacy for being gone and constantly accuses her of being unfaithful. While his accusations of infidelity are utterly tasteless at a time like this, according to a discovery in the Illinois State Police investigation, they weren't entirely unfounded. Stacy had briefly texted the brother of an old friend named Scott Rossetto. Their messages were sexual in nature. And on the night Stacy disappeared, investigators learn that her cell phone pings off one of the towers near Scott's home in Shorewood. For authorities, it feels like a promising lead. Maybe that's where Stacy went. Maybe Scott Rossetto knows something. Maybe he's the other man. They push for answers, only to find out Scott has an airtight alibi for that night. He wasn't with Stacy. When Scott later testifies in front of a grand jury, he swears his relationship with Stacy was only casual flirting. He wasn't interested in an affair with a married woman. As far as investigators can determine, he's telling the truth. So the question for everyone becomes, why was Stacy in Scott's neighborhood that night? And where did she go after? Unless, of course, it wasn't Stacy who traveled to Shorewood. It was someone with an intimate knowledge of criminal investigations. As one Chicago Times columnist wrote, it's more likely that Drew took Stacy's cell phone to Shorewood and called his own, which he'd left at home. That way, the calls and pings would seemingly corroborate the story he would later tell police. See, the most mind-boggling part of this case is, immediately after she disappears, almost all of Stacy's friends and family are worried that Drew hurt or killed her. There's very little doubt about what happened. Drew's stepbrother, Thomas Morphy, tells police a particularly incriminating story. Shortly before midnight on October 29th, the day after Stacy disappears, Thomas tries to end his own life but survives. He's taken to the hospital and when he recovers, he answers questions from police and ultimately explains why he attempted suicide. He's been an emotional wreck lately, overcome with guilt ever since he helped his stepbrother dispose of a blue plastic barrel. Shortly after Stacy Peterson goes missing, Thomas Morphy tells police about a discussion he had with his stepbrother, Drew Peterson. The conversation happened just one day before Stacy disappeared. Drew apparently told Thomas that Stacy was cheating on him. Everything started off pretty normal, what you might expect from someone going through serious marital problems, but then the conversation took a turn. Drew stopped mentioning Stacy directly and started discussing how to best dispose of the problem. According to Thomas, Drew tried to recruit his help. He asked Thomas to lease a storage unit somewhere under Thomas's name, so there wouldn't be a paper trail back to Drew. Supposedly, they could keep a body there until the media and any criminal investigation calmed down. When the time was right, Drew would take care of the rest. Thomas knew Drew was planning on killing somebody, he told his stepbrother that he loved him, but he didn't want to get involved with whatever was going on. And while that may be true, after Thomas left, he didn't warn anyone. Not the police, not Stacy. Then, the next night, the same night Stacy went missing, Drew called him asking for a favor. He needed help transporting something heavy. It was after dark. Drew picked Thomas up in his SUV. They drove to Starbucks to get some coffee. Then they went back to Drew's house and Drew took him upstairs to a room with a blue plastic barrel in it. It weighed about 140 pounds and was warm to the touch. Drew allegedly said it was filled with chlorine, but according to Thomas, after loading it in the back of the car, Drew turned to him and said point blank. This never happened. it's a damning story. But when news of the confession reaches the public, people try to discredit Thomas as a witness, citing his history of substance use disorders. According to Thomas, he knew this would be the case. In a way, his personal struggles and questionable credibility made him the perfect accomplice to his stepbrother's crimes. And it's hard not to wonder whether Drew knew that. But here's the thing, Footage from the Starbucks drive through that night clearly shows Thomas and Drew getting coffee. So at the very least, portions of Thomas's account can be confirmed. The problem is there's no other hard evidence and there's no physical proof that Stacy's dead. It's not easy to charge someone with murder without a body and win the case. As attorney Chuck Bretz explains, there is no scientific evidence to work with. No proof anyone was in fact killed. To make sure this case is foolproof, someone needs to find that blue barrel. In addition to the police, Stacy's family and friends conduct searches themselves. Eventually, investigators learn that on the night Stacy disappeared, Drew's cell phone pinged off a tower near the Chicago Sanitary and Ship Canal a system of waterways that connects the Des Plains and Chicago rivers. Soon, boats filled with divers and volunteers focus all their attention on the area, looking for Stacy's remains. But it's a daunting task. See, the canal system is 28 miles long. The Des Plains River is 133 miles long and 100 feet across in some spots. The Chicago River is even bigger than that. And to make matters worse, the water tends to be murky, especially in the colder months. So these searches carry on for weeks, then months, then years. People find blue plastic barrels, but none that contain Stacy's remains. Meanwhile, while all that is happening, the prosecutor working Stacy's case, James Glasgow, decides to shift tactics. Since he can't physically prove Drew had a hand in his fourth wife's disappearance, he decides to reinvestigate the death of his third wife, Kathleen Savio. In his mind, Kathleen's case never got the attention it deserved. Despite protests from family and friends, officials swept the investigation under the rug as quickly as possible and ruled it an accident. But now with a national spotlight on Stacey's investigation, people are paying attention. They're poring over the case, realizing the details really don't read like an accident. An autopsy was conducted back in 2004. The coroner claimed that Kathleen slipped, fell, and accidentally drowned in her bathtub, but those closest to her never felt like that conclusion was supported by reality. Kathleen was a healthy woman in her early forties. She wasn't drinking, using drugs, or suffering from any severe medical condition. It didn't make sense that she'd fall, or if she did, that it would kill her, especially when there was no water in the tub when she was found. Luckily, when Kathleen's body is exhumed in November, 2007, a second autopsy confirms what her loved ones already suspected. Her cause of death was homicide. It's possible Kathleen was hit over the head with a blunt object after she died, presumably to mimic the type of wound caused by a fall. The bruises on her body were all consistent with being pinned down and drowned. The evidence was there all along. So in February, 2008, about four months after Stacy disappears, officials change Kathleen's cause of death from accidental drowning to homicide. Eventually, Drew Peterson is indicted on murder charges. It's a long road to get there, but by 2012, the formal trial begins. The irony is the defense doesn't have their would-be star witness, the person who provided Drew with an alibi for the day Kathleen died back in 2004, because that person was Stacy. The court convicts Drew Peterson of first-degree murder and a judge sentences him to 38 years in prison. It's far more lenient than he deserves, but at 58 years old, it basically ensures he'll spend the rest of his life behind bars. To no one's surprise, he appeals the decision, and soon the case travels up to the Illinois State Supreme Court. The appeal is denied, but not before Drew tries to hire a hitman to kill James Glasgow, the attorney who prosecuted his case. Yes, after being convicted of one murder, and while a suspect in another homicide investigation, he tried to orchestrate a third just in case there was any question about the type of person Drew Peterson is. These actions add 40 more years to his sentence, bringing the total to 78, and it still doesn't feel like justice, partly because as of recording this episode, he hasn't been convicted of any crime related to Stacy. Yes, what happened to Stacy feels undeniable. We know Drew's capable of violence, We know he's capable of murder. He's been convicted of killing Kathleen and he tried to kill again. We know he lied about where he was that night. We know he had motives to kill Stacy. We have Thomas Morphy's account of Drew disposing of a 140 pound barrel that was warm to the touch on the night Stacy went missing. And to top it all off, Drew's lawyer, this guy named Joel Brodsky, has basically implied that Drew killed Stacy without actually saying it. While baiting the press and hiding behind attorney-client privilege, he told reporters, quote, After Drew passes away, I believe that Stacy will be found. End quote. Given all that we know, it's easy to wonder why he hasn't been charged with Stacy's murder. But if prosecutors lose the trial because of insufficient evidence, Drew can't be charged with Stacy's murder ever again, even if more proof comes to light. He'd be protected under the Fifth Amendment. So until there's forensic evidence that erases all doubt, there's probably a reason prosecutors aren't rushing into the courtroom. Maybe investigators would look at this case differently if Drew was still out there and he posed a threat to others, but he's not. As long as he serves all his time, he'll be in prison for the rest of his life. The tragedy is, he didn't get there soon enough. Not to make a difference for Stacy, for Kathleen, or for any of the other women he abused for that matter. It's really hard for me to sit here and swallow the fact that he wasn't stopped earlier. Because he should have been. Before Drew Peterson was bold enough to kill, he was a domestic abuser, the type of man who dragged women by their hair. More than a decade before her murder, a suburban Chicago emergency room treated Kathleen Savio for a head wound, apparently caused by being hit with a dining room table. So many survivors have spoken out about his past. If his coworkers knew enough about his private life to make sure he wasn't committing statutory rape while cheating on his wife, they knew who he was. He wrote fake traffic tickets to scare his exes. At basically every turn, the friends and family of his partners told the police that he was a dangerous, violent man, and they weren't alone. His partners were saying the same thing. Two years before her murder, Kathleen filed an order of protection against Drew, citing his guns and other weapons saying, quote, I believe he will use them on me. He just doesn't care if he lives or dies or if I live or die, end quote. She even told officials how she would die ahead of time. In a letter to the Will County Assistant State Attorney, she stated in no uncertain words, that she was worried that her ex-husband would kill her and make it look like an accident. And that's just a taste of what I have to imagine is a very long paper trail. But what did his supervisors do? They kept him on their payroll. Drew retired from the force the December after Stacey went missing, and for a while continued to collect a sizable pension. And I haven't even mentioned the fact that it really feels like someone in law enforcement had a hand in trying to cover up Kathleen's murder. Now, the Bolingbroke chief of police has since asked the FBI to examine how the precinct handled all allegations involving Drew before and during his tenure. But personally, it feels like a bit of political posturing that's far too little, too late police officers in America are notorious for protecting their own. Anyone can make their paperwork look correct. The time to take action was before people lost their lives. And the reality is domestic abuse among law enforcement professionals is an epidemic. Studies have shown that individuals in the law enforcement community are two to four times more likely than civilians to become perpetrators of family violence. Others cite that they're 15 times more likely to domestically abuse their partner than the general population. The reason there's such a discrepancy in those stats is because it's hard to pinpoint exact numbers. Partners of cops are less likely to report abuse. They're afraid their concerns won't be taken seriously or what might happen if their partner finds out. I mean, who do you turn to when the person paid to protect you is also your abuser? What's even scarier about these statistics is that there's rarely any serious blowback for the abusers. The same year Stacy disappeared, an officer who handcuffed his wife, grabbed her hair, shoved her to the ground, and gave her a swollen right eye by pushing her into a door frame was charged with the equivalent of a noise violation. He kept his gun and his badge and was later promoted to detective. This happens far too often. Officers are slapped with nonviolent charges for incredibly violent behavior. Maybe they'll be asked to take a couple weeks off with or without pay, but not only are these slaps on the wrist abysmally inadequate, they're the rare cases. I'm not saying all police officers are abusers or corrupt. No one is, but it should not be controversial to point out that accountability standards should be higher for those we pay to keep us safe, not lower. Change needs to happen and it needs to be structural. People love to say that it's just a few bad apples. The problem is much bigger than that, but for argument's sake, let's just say that's true. Why shield those people from consequences? Why not root the rot out? It would be doing the bare minimum, but it would save lives. Which brings me back to Stacy. Her family is still searching for more evidence to convict Drew Peterson of her murder. As recently as October, 2021, FBI and Illinois state police crews combed the Chicago sanitary and ship canal for evidence. Stacy's sister, Cassandra, is sure that her body is somewhere in the canal and she'll keep searching until it's found, until she can get justice for Stacy. As for what we can do in the meantime to honor people like Stacy and Kathleen, consider getting involved in your local community advisory board they often get the chance to speak with precinct leaders. You can talk to them and ask them questions about what they're doing. The first step to being able to change something is knowing what's going on. Next episode, when a conceptual artist disappears on a trip across the Atlantic Ocean in 1975, The world is left wondering if it was an accident or just another art installation. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to listen to this episode, 35 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Kettler, sound designed by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Disappearances was written by Mackenzie Moore, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, Amber Hurley, and Connor Sampson, with fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Mickey Taylor. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.